Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, May 27th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Russia summons German, Danish, and Swedish envoys over their Nord Stream investigations. A Belgian aid worker and Iranian diplomat are released in a prisoner swap. NVIDIA is close to becoming the first trillion-dollar chip firm. A U.S. doctor is reprimanded for discussing an abortion provided to a child rape victim. A Rwandan genocide fugitive is arrested in South Africa. DeSantis's campaign says it raised $8.2 million in the first 24 hours. The U.S. unveils a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism. Amnesty alleges that Peru displayed racial bias in its crackdown on protests. Elon Musk's Neuralink says it has received FDA approval to test brain chips in humans. And a new superbug-killing antibiotic is discovered using AI. In our top story, Russia summons Germany, Denmark, and Sweden envoys over the Nord Stream investigation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, TASS, Reuters, DW, Al-Arabia, and RT. Russia's foreign ministry has summoned the ambassadors of Germany, Sweden, and Denmark to protest over the results of investigations into the blasts that damaged the Nord Stream gas pipelines last year. Moscow called the lack of cooperation with Russia unacceptable. According to Moscow's foreign ministry, the three countries have, on a number of occasions, ignored notes from Russian embassies, as well as appeals from the Russian government to launch open investigations. Russia's foreign ministry also said in a statement that the three countries showed no interest in establishing the truth and accused them of slow-walking the result and attempting to bury the identity of the perpetrator. The U.S. and NATO have called the Nord Stream explosions, quote, an act of sabotage by an unknown actor, but Russia has blamed the West for the blasts. Russia's foreign ministry said on Thursday, quote, It is no coincidence that leaked, improbable versions of events are dumped in the media and try to muddy the waters. It added that Moscow will keep trying to ensure that the three nations conduct their investigations objectively and that Russia participates. In March, the UN Security Council rejected a Moscow-drafted resolution calling for an independent investigation into the sabotage. In February, American journalist Seymour Hersh published an extensive report claiming that the U.S. destroyed Russia's pipeline. The Washington called it, quote, utterly false. Vladimir Putin fully agreed with Hirsch's findings. Thank you, Eric. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Eric just laid out the facts on that story. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with an establishment critical narrative provided by U.S. News. The Russian foreign ministry has repeatedly urged these three countries to share information about the progress of their separate investigations into the Nord Stream sabotage, but they have refused. It should be clear to everyone that the U.S. and its allies are doing all that they can to obstruct independent investigation into what happened in the Baltic Sea last September. The pro-establishment narrative comes from Reuters. Germany, Sweden, and Denmark have been informing Russian authorities on all progress in their separate investigations. These probes are still ongoing, and there is no date set when they will be concluded. 
The three countries' authorities will continue with this transparent dialogue despite unfounded criticism from Moscow. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction Community. They've got an opinion on this story that they think there's a 3% chance before 2025, an investigation conducted by or on behalf of any NATO government will report that the U.S. was involved in the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline. Real roundabout way of uh, blaming the U.S. kind of half-heartedly. Well, you were you were over there at that time. I was told I I was because uh, you were you, traveling. No, you you were you, traveling, Eric. In, you know we're not supposed to talk about that on yeah. this on this program. You were there. The lawyers the lawyer said we can't talk. You about were there. Okay, okay, fine, fine. Adam, make pipeline go boom. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. A Belgian aid worker and an Iranian diplomat were both released in a prisoner swap. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Financial Times, Al Jazeera, BBC News, Independent, Associated Press, and Arab News. Belgian aid worker Olivier van de Castille and Iranian diplomat Asadollah Assadi were swapped on Friday in Oman following a deal brokered by the Gulf country and a bilateral prisoner exchange treaty signed last year, which was upheld this spring by Belgium's constitutional court. Van de Castille, who spent 455 days in prison in Tehran, was sentenced in a closed-door trial in January to 40 years in prison. 74 lashes, and a $1 million fine on charges of espionage, allegations which Brussels and his family deny. He worked for six years in Iran for the Norwegian Refugee Council and other aid agencies until 2021, returning to Tehran in February 2022 to move out of his apartment against Belgian government advice. Meanwhile, Asadi was sentenced in 2021 to years in jail for allegedly orchestrating a thwarted bomb against an exiled Iranian opposition group in France, despite Tehran arguing that he was, quote, an innocent diplomat. Later identified by Belgian intelligence as an officer of Iran's security ministry operating undercover at the embassy in Austria, he was tied to a couple reportedly trying to target a meeting of the Muhaddin Ikalak, an Iranian exile organization in Villepont. Iran has long come under scrutiny for detaining foreign and dual nationals on charges of violating state security. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. The first spin is an anti-Iran narrative, and it's coming from Politico. While it's great news that Olivier Van de Castille has been released after being unjustly detained in Iran for over a year, it is shameful that a convicted terrorist needed to be exchanged for his freedom. Asadullah Assadi is a dangerous terrorist who plotted a bombing against Iranian dissidents in France. This deal only incentivizes Iran's illegal detention of foreign nationals to use as pawns to free terrorists, betray human rights, and wield leverage in nuclear deal negotiations. And that's going to be followed up with a pro-Iran narrative provided by Press TV. The release of Asadullah Assadi is great news for Iran and justice after being falsely accused of terrorism and illegally detained for more than two years, he can finally return home to where he belongs. Asadi is a patriot, 
and would never be involved in any terrorist activities. Yet Belgium defied international law by detaining him for two years without any rights. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by April of the year 2037. Adam, did you notice that Vanda Castile, part of his punishment, he, was, uh, he only received uh, 74 lashes. You see what they did there, don't you? No. They only gave him enough ashes for one of his eyes. Only enough ashes for one eye. So, you know, as a cross-dresser, that's going to be complete torture for him to only be able to wear mascara on one side, on one eye. Oh, my goodness. Oh, the poor guy. What a horrible punishment for him. How would you cope in such a situation there, Eric? What would you do if you only had lashes for one eye? I'd, you know, I'd have to go, I'd have to go the eye patch route. Eye patch. And then what would your, what would your drag name be then? It would be Cyclops. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, coming to the stage, (laughs) let's give it up for Cyclops. (laughs) In tech news, NVIDIA approaches a trillion dollar mark on AI use. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNBC, Financial Times, Investopedia, BBC News, and MarketWatch. After surpassing Wall Street estimates for the first quarter of 2023, chip maker giant NVIDIA's stock rose around 26% on Thursday, increasing its value from around $196 billion to almost $1 trillion at approximately $951 billion. The company recorded a revenue of $7.19 billion for Q1, as well as earnings per share of $1.09 in comparison to estimates of approximately $6.5 billion and $0.92, respectively. NVIDIA also greatly exceeded Wall Street forecasts for sales in the second quarter by 50%, predicting a total of $11 billion. NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang stated that the microchip sector was experiencing two simultaneous transitions in accelerated computing and artificial intelligence, driving NVIDIA's impressive results. Wang also stated that the company would increase related production to match the surge in demand. A recent report by CB Insights revealed that NVIDIA holds approximately 95% of the market for AI graphic processing units, or GPU, with its AI chips selling for approximately $10,000 each. Approximately 10,000 NVIDIA GPUs were used within a Microsoft supercomputer in order to create ChatGPT. While the news also caused stock rises for companies such as monolithic power systems, Taiwan semiconductors, and advanced micro devices, industry rival Intel saw a 5% drop in its stock price. Thanks for the facts, Eric. We've got a Narrative A spin provided by TipRanks. The current euphoria surrounding NVIDIA won't last forever. While riding high on the AI hype and beating market expectations, NVIDIA's revenues still decreased from 2022's first quarter. Furthermore, NVIDIA's gaming division also saw disappointing results. With these factors being considered, the now highly anticipated second quarter results this year may not be as rosy as many have forecast. Narrative B comes from Yahoo News. NVIDIA's soaring stock price isn't a bubble that's going to burst. Its CEO has a track record of executing his vision strongly and the company is leading the chip market and continuing to pour money into its expanding AI services, 
While, like many seismic stock increases, we may see a slight dip in the near future, NVIDIA is on course to continue its success. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They think there's an 85% chance that Metaculus will continue to advise that AI poses a global catastrophic risk by 2040. Does that make any sense to you? It just means that they like to speak in third person. There's an 85% chance that we might be saying that it's a bad idea by the year 2040. Right. But after 2040, they're contractually obligated to say nice things. They have they're on retainer until 2040. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. A U.S. doctor is reprimanded for discussing a child rape victim's abortion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, and BBC News. Dr. Caitlin Bernard, an Indiana doctor who provided an abortion for a 10-year-old rape victim who crossed state lines to receive the treatment last June, has been reprimanded by Indiana's Medical Licensing Board for speaking publicly about the case. The state medical board fined Bernard $3,000 and issued a letter of reprimand for violating the victim's privacy by publicizing the case, but cleared her of the allegation that she failed to report the rape to authorities. In her testimony at the hearing on Thursday, Bernard denied revealing any identifiable information when she spoke with the media about the case and claimed she was compliant with patient confidentiality laws, which her employer, Indiana University Health, affirmed last summer. Dr. John Strobel, board president, stated that he believed Bernard was a, quote, good doctor who's fit to return to practice, but cautioned physicians to be more careful in this situation, adding he believed Bernard didn't expect the attention brought upon her by the case. The complaint was filed by Indiana Attorney General Todd Rockita, who criticized Bernard for discussing the case with media outlets. A lawyer representing Rockita at the hearing said Bernard's actions were driven by an agenda, while Bernard reiterated she felt an obligation to speak out about the impact of abortion restrictions. After the appeal of Roe v. Wade last June, the Indianapolis Star published Bernard's account of providing an abortion for a 10-year-old Ohio girl who needed to travel to Indiana due to Ohio's ban on abortion after six weeks of gestation, with the case becoming a flashpoint in the national debate over abortion. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from The Federalist. A board of her peers rightly found her in the wrong for bringing international attention to a rape victim who was only 10 years of age at the time, no doubt distressing the victim and her family greatly. What's worse, Bernard did so to advance a political agenda at her own admission. The liberal media was complicit in this grave violation of medical ethics by making the lurid and disturbing details headline news. And CommonDreams.org is going to follow that up with a Democratic narrative. A vindictive attorney general has convinced a medical board handpicked by a Republican governor to punish a doctor for showing the naked truth of what a post-Roe America looks like. Conservatives have relentlessly hounded the doctor for daring to speak out, falsely accusing her of lying about the case and then trumping up charges at a professional hearing to silence those who speak out against the GOP agenda. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. 
before the year 2030. In our next story, a Rwandan genocide fugitive has been arrested in South Africa. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, ABC News, the International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals, and CBC. A suspect in the 1994 Rwanda genocide, Fulgence Kayashima, has been arrested after over 20 years on the run in South Africa, the International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals said on Thursday. Kayashima, accused of killing over 2,000 Tutsi refugees at Niang Catholic Church during the genocide, was arrested by South African authorities alongside UN investigators who believe he used multiple identities and forged documents to evade detection. Kayashima was a police inspector when he allegedly planned the massacre by acquiring petrol to burn down the church with people trapped inside. When that failed, he and co-conspirators reportedly bulldozed the church, burying the refugees, including women, the elderly, and children, underneath. Kayashima was indicted by the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda in 2001 on charges of genocide and crimes against humanity before leading authorities. The indictment was part of a search that IRMCT prosecutors say spanned multiple countries in Africa and beyond. The U.S. War Crimes Rewards Program offered up to $5 million for information on Kayashima and the other fugitives involved in the massacre, which reportedly killed an estimated 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus in 90 days. With Kayashima set to appear in a Cape Town court on Friday before his likely extradition to Rwanda, the IRMCT says it has tracked down five Rwandan genocide suspects since 2020 and that the search is on for three more. Eric, thank you for the facts. We've got a pro-establishment narrative to start this round of spins, provided by the UN News. Though it's been almost 30 years since the genocide was committed, Kayashima's arrest shows that the world has not forgotten about the victims of those horrific crimes. International investigators worked tirelessly for more than two decades to bring Kayashima to justice and it won't stop until every perpetrator is found, arrested, and prosecuted for their crimes against humanity. The establishment critical narrative is coming from The Guardian. The world should know that non-African actors also contributed to the genocide. The CIA was well aware of and ignored the growing anti-Tutsi rhetoric spreading throughout Rwanda at the time. Moreover, the U.S. agency supplied Uganda, which aided the genocide, with military and development aid. To make things worse, America lauded Uganda's Museveni as a peacemaker during the massacre. There is no reason those in power should not be held accountable for their failure to stop the genocide. DeSantis's campaign says it raised $8.2 million in its first 24 hours. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Fox News, The Blaze, CBS, NBC, and Independent. Florida Governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis's team announced it had raised a record $8.2 million within 24 hours after the governor officially launched his campaign for the Republican nomination on Wednesday via a Twitter Spaces event with Elon Musk. The exact breakdown of how the funds were raised is unknown, but the $8.2 million total includes online donations and contributions to a fundraiser held in Miami on Thursday. 
DeSantis' 24-hour haul surpasses President Biden's first-day fundraising of $6.3 million for their 2020 campaign. GOP frontrunner Donald Trump raised $9.5 million in the six weeks following his mid-November candidacy announcement and reportedly raised $7 million in the three days following his recent indictment. DeSantis's never-back-down super PAC has an expected budget of $200 million, with $100 million devoted to the political ground game. An exclusive NBC News story reported Friday that DeSantis's gubernatorial administration officials have been soliciting campaign funds from donors, which has raised ethical and potentially legal questions since political staff should not be involved in campaign affairs. DeSantis's office didn't comment when asked about the allegations, but an administration official said he and other Florida state employees, quote, personally donated to the governor's campaign. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is coming from The Daily Wire. And it's narrative A. DeSantis is a very serious contender for both the 2024 Republican presidential nomination and the office at large. And he only confirmed this fact with his historic fundraising effort. Just like he has done in Florida, DeSantis is bringing voters from many different backgrounds together. And he's getting immense support from donors big and small. Money is a key factor in many political races. But it certainly won't be an issue for DeSantis, who continues to be immensely popular in the GOP ecosystem. And we've got a narrative B provided by WayneDupree.com. It's very suspicious that the day DeSantis announces record-breaking campaign fundraising, NBC News reports that his administration officials are soliciting money from Florida's wealthiest lobbyists. $8.2 million in 24 hours doesn't come from the average Joe chipping in a few bucks. And DeSantis is clearly very friendly with some of the nation's most wealthy donors. If DeSantis did indeed mix his gubernatorial administration with his presidential campaign, this could be a massive sign of corruption. And the Mentaculous Prediction community is very busy today. They are contributing a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 28% chance that Ron DeSantis is the 2024 Republican nominee for president. In our next story, the U.S. unveils a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, CBS, Associated Press, The National, Vox, and Al Jazeera. The Biden administration on Thursday published a national strategy to immediately address rising anti-Semitism in the U.S. The scope of the strategy encompassed actions across public sector agencies, law enforcement, education, and online spaces. The strategy includes improving safety and security for Jewish communities, with President Biden insisting, quote, anti-Semitism and all forms of hate and violence have no place in America. The strategy, which focuses on four basic goals, including reversing the normalization of anti-Semitism, outlines more than 100 steps the U.S. government and its partners will take to counter hateful rhetoric and actions. Per the FBI, American Jews are the victims of 63% of reported religious hate crimes, yet only account for slightly more than 2% of the U.S. population. The strategy, which comes amid continuing debate about how to define anti-Semitism, 
stopped short of officially and overtly adopting the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism advocated for by pro-Israel groups, while pro-Palestine groups allege that the alliance's definition, which says criticism of Israel cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic, is used to stifle discourse about Israeli human rights abuses Pro-Israel groups argue that directing anti-Israel messaging at Jews should be considered anti-Semitic. Thank you for the facts, Eric. We're going to start off with a left narrative for this story provided by Al Jazeera. Biden's carefully worded language seemed to please elements on both sides of the Israel-Palestine issue. Anti-Semitism is becoming alarmingly normalized in the U.S., but this is due to right-wing politicians and constituencies that are becoming increasingly radicalized. This policy will go a long way towards taking a firm stance against a shocking and unacceptable rise of anti-Semitism. The New York Post gives us the right narrative. The Biden administration has disturbingly diluted the definition of anti-Semitism as it failed to condemn opposition to Israel's creation or to hold the Jewish state to different standards than other countries. The U.S. government should strictly use the IHRA's definition of anti-Semitism. The Biden administration must make clear that any opposition to Israel's right to exist is anti-Semitism, plain and simple. And the Nerds of Metaculous have an opinion as well. They think there's a 50% chance that at least 111,000 U.S. Jews will move to Israel by 2050. So they're basically going to be clearing out Florida is what Metaculous is saying. That's exactly, yeah, exactly (laughs) what they're saying. Florida will be a ghost town. It will. Amnesty International alleges that Peru displayed racial biases in its crackdown on protests. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Amnesty International, CNN, and The Guardian. A new Amnesty International report alleges that the Peruvian government has used disproportionate violence against poor and indigenous people throughout the months-long protest that took place following former President Pedro Castillo's impeachment and arrest in December. Amnesty reported a total of 49 deaths between December and February. It claims 20 of those deaths could be categorized as extrajudicial executions, as security forces used live fire on crowds and aimed at vulnerable parts of the body. This follows a similar report in February in which Amnesty said, quote, videos and eyewitness accounts suggest that several police officers fired bullets from the rooftops of buildings, adding that witnesses claimed armed forces fired live rounds for at least seven hours in and around the airport in Ayacucho. According to the report, indigenous people made up 80% of protest deaths, despite constituting 13% of the country's population, alleging this proves the government displays, quote, marked racist bias. Protesters believe that current president, Dina Bularte, who was Castillo's vice president, should resign. However, Buluarte has refused to do so, and Congress has refused to hold early elections this year, another demand by protesters. Thursday's report came the same day Peru's government declared Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador as, quote, persona non grata after he called Baluarte a puppet and offered Castillo and his family asylum in Mexico. 
Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from Amnesty International. These were blatant executions, and the fact that almost every protester who died for months was a racial minority shot in or around the vital organs is not a coincidence. Peru must launch a genuine investigation into this matter and clean up its security forces, an institution with a clear history of racial bias and complete disregard for human life. And ForeignPolicy.com is providing us with a narrative B. While racial and class divisions are certainly part of Peru's current crisis, the issues the country faces today all boil down to a long history of government corruption. The upper-middle-class income nation sustains a 30% poverty rate because politicians, through nothing other than their greed, divert public funds away from the state and put them in their pockets. Worrying about racism, while noble, won't tackle the real reason people are taking to the streets, which is a lack of economic opportunity for large swaths of the nation. The FDA allows Musk to test brain chips in humans. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Verge, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. On Thursday, Elon Musk's brain chip from Neuralink said the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has allowed it to start a first-in-human clinical study to test its brain implants. The news follows the Tesla, SpaceX, and Twitter CEO's November claim that Neuralink was about six months away from its first human trial and that he would implant one of its brain chips in his own head in the future. Earlier this year, a Reuters report claimed the FDA had rejected Musk's bid to test brain chips in humans, citing safety risks, including the potential for the implant's wispy wires to drift to the other side of the brain. Neuralink's coin-sized prototypes, which have already been tested in monkeys and pigs, are reportedly designed to interpret brain signals and relay information to devices like smartphones or computers via Bluetooth. Musk claims Neuralink's brain chips can help paralyze people walk again, cure neurological issues, and allow for symbiosis with artificial intelligence. The announcement, which hasn't been confirmed by the FDA, comes after a proof-of-concept study published Wednesday revealed how a Dutch man paralyzed by chronic tetraplegia could stand and walk naturally with the help of brain and spinal cord implants. Well, Eric, we've got a narrative A spin to start off this story from PenLive.com. Merging minds and superpowered computing is crucial if people wish to avoid being replaced by AI. If Neuralink can be a game changer for people with disabilities, cure conditions such as autism and schizophrenia, and enable web browsing and telepathy, Musk's brain-computer interface shouldn't be dismissed. Narrative B comes from Healthline. The FDA's alleged approval of this non-therapeutic research raises several ethical issues. Though it insists safety, accessibility, and reliability are its priorities, Neuralink has been involved in botched animal experiments and has already been the subject of federal probes, including one over transporting dangerous pathogens on chips removed from monkey brains in an unsafe manner. The story's also generated a narrative C provided by Washington Post. Neuralink isn't alone in trying to use brain-computer interfaces to hack brain signals and transmit them directly to electronic devices. Multiple technologists have discussed a world where anyone could receive brain implants to achieve superintelligence. 
but the FDA must regulate the rising tide of brain chip companies that may violate not only ethical standards, but also conflict of interest and security regulations. And once again, our friends at Metaculus are giving us a nerd narrative. They say that there's a 50% chance that the FDA will grant Neuralink permission to sell and implant a brain-machine interface device into general consumers by September of the year 2036. And in our final story today, a new superbug-killing antibiotic has been discovered using AI. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, RNZ, Independent, and CNN. Artificial intelligence has helped a team of scientists discover a new antibiotic that can be lethal to a strain of deadly superbug. The U.S.-Canadian team said that the finding may greatly speed up the process of discovering new treatments. On Thursday, the results from the team from McMaster University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to combat Acinetobacter bomani, the superbug determined to be a critical threat by the World Health Organization, were published in Nature Chemical Biology. The result of this research was the robust yet experimental antibiotic called Abusin. Before the new drug can be released to the market, it will require further testing. The bacteria can result in pneumonia, meningitis, and the infection of wounds. Acinetobacter bomani can also acquire genes from other bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. While broad-spectrum antibiotics kill many different kinds of bacteria at once, what the group of scientists are trying to develop is an antibiotic designed to work only against Acinetobacter bomani to slow its rate of resistance. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from Brighter World. In search of new medical treatments, the old way was to test one chemical at a time. This is slow, labor-intensive, and costly. Modern computational approaches using artificial intelligence can assess the antibacterial properties of hundreds of millions, possibly billions of molecules, enabling scientists to develop new drugs much faster and cheaper. AI has resulted in a true medical breakthrough here. And Drexel has provided a narrative B. Artificial intelligence may be used in healthcare systems to reduce costs and relieve clinicians of some workload, but its use also raises important concerns. While rendering some research jobs redundant is one of these, there are also other more major downsides to the risk of missing data, excluding important social variables, and vulnerability to cyber attacks. AI must be used with caution and regulation. And we have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 95% chance that there will be an AI Sputnik moment before 2050. Well, I tell you, once you get that name in your head, it just flips right off your tongue. That's a fun word to say, Asinetobacter bumani. If I could ever do it over again and start having kids, that would be, I would name my first child after that, definitely. Asinetobacter bumani. Call him AB for short? Yeah. AB. Yep, AB. <laughs> Dad, but I'm Asinetobacter bumani. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, May 27th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on 
and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.